This week we chat with recently retired pro triathlete and head coach for APB Works, Colin Norris. We love Colin's holistic approach to coaching and balancing the demands of triathlon with real life. But most of all, we love his stories about the hard lessons he learned from life on the road with Madam Olive the dog. So let's dive in and find out what it takes to make it as a pro triathlete. What's that? What is this? In your, box, in your boxes. That's Matt's favourite new uh, oh, purchase. Straddling it. a horse. It's my favourite new purchase. It's a, nece if, it's if a it necessary had, purchase. If, if it had a spring and you could, like, I, I'd be down. You break it, you buy it. Right. 85 quid, that thing costs. Do you want to say I'm ready. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today, then? Well, who have we got to talk with? Oh, I guess we should introduce them, shouldn't we? So well, who, who isn't here and who is here? Well, it's uh, a bunch of bike fitters again. So just there's Matt, there's Way. Apologies and... in advance. <laughs> uh, and Colin, Colin Norris from APB Works. So um, I don't know what's the best way to introduce Colin. Shall we should you let him introduce himself? Could do. Yeah. Go the on, man, then. the myth, the legend. The legend. Yeah, he's so, done it enough. Isn't he? So yeah, give us a succinct overview, Colin, who you are, why you're here, how you got to this point. Succinct is rich coming from you. Um, <laughs> my name's Colin. Thanks for the introduction. I was a professional triathlete, retired in November last year, and now I coach people full time. Um, and I know Matt very well, too well from his days back in Stripe Street in Liverpool Street. And then we became mates. I also coached Matt as well. And um, through that, I've obviously met Way over at Foundation Fit. Amazing. That was pretty succinct. That was pretty succinct. Yeah. yeah. He's doing all right. Cheers. Yeah. Don't look so stressed, mate. I'm a little bit. You seem too relaxed. This <laughs> it makes me unnerving. I'm enjoying this. I'm waiting for some tricky questions. Yeah. you got a good pod voice. Thanks. Yeah, so it should be all right. See pronunciation. I could put it on if needed. If needed. Annunciation. That's the one. What's your uh, London Fields Lido voice? I tend to go more street there because I'm against the gentrification of the area. <laughs> We're kind of all keeping in with your, your time as a grime MC in South London, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. My, my humble beginnings in South London. Um, and now I'm in the kind of, I'm in the midst of... Uh, Central left, hipster Hackney, <laughs> Hackney London. You've come London far, Memphis. mate. You've come exactly, far. Exactly, exactly. But I think yeah, like yeah. it'd be good to sort of yeah, like talking about your your humble street beginnings in the, the bad streets of Bromley. Yeah, <laughs> be good to uh, you know just get an overview. Like yeah, how like how do you become a professional triathlete? Yeah. Like where did you where does your journey in sports start? You know any yeah. any highs lows all that sort of thing and sort of why did you. Where did you get to kind of the point where you were doing yeah, sport professionally? Yeah, sure. I'll try and again, I'll try and make this as succinct. Um, so yeah, growing up, obviously had way too much energy and channeled that into sport where I could. Um, and that probably started, believe it or not, in rugby. And uh, Just really? for context, <laughs> <laughs> Colin's about six foot two and weighs about 65 about kilos, dripping wet. Yeah, uh, so that didn't last long. And then um, and then I started running. I had like a P teacher, Mr. Coe, 
got me into running. Sebastian. Uh, no, not Peter. even not even related. <laughs> Richard uh, got got me into running, and uh, I sort of loved it. Was quite good at it, and uh, ran from the age of sort of eleven to sort of fifteen, and it was all quite fun really nothing too structured like you train twice in the week once a uh, race on the weekend did like track and cross country um and i think when you're that age you're just looking just looking for something to like identify you and be good at and i think that was like a natural fit for me i was always pretty average at school so it was like easy to just put all my energy into like running um and then like i had a few injuries and i think i, I can't remember how i kind of got out of running but i I also had a like growth spurt at the same time and I became like from like competitive to like not competitive like overnight, particularly in like cross country, which basically led me to think that maybe this isn't the path for me. And considering at the time I was like flopping school, I was like, I think my mum said, maybe you should try and focus a bit more on school. And that was, I think when like GCSE mocks came out and I was like, yeah, good idea. <laughs> so I sort of, I started, started to run less and started to study more. Um, and then did a bit of swimming um, and then went off to university, completely sort of forgot about sport, was focusing on socialising and a bit of studying at Sussex. And then my sort of trajectory was like, right, I'm going to get on a grad scheme, work in the city, earn some money, etc. And I was on that kind of trajectory with everyone else. Well, actually not everyone else because um, Sussex was a very sort of socialist uni. So there's about five of us that did business. Um, and uh, so after uni... I started working in the city and I think as soon as I put on a suit on, I kind of realised like, is this it? And it was kind of, I wouldn't say I was like actively looking for a way out, but I kind of came back to a sport as a way to kind of escape the sort of day-to-day -day, uh, mundanity that I found myself in. So I started running again and I used to run back from work, run to work, train at lunch, just basically burn off as much excess energy as I had. Um, and then when I was like 24, I think, um, I met this chap called Trevor Simmons, who was a massage therapist uh, at my local run club. And he suggested to me the idea of doing a triathlon, which I'd never even like thought about. Um, so I entered London Triathlon and trained like a maniac. I was probably doing 90% intensity, 10% aerobic, <laughs> uh, which I could get away with back then. And um, did London Tri, did pretty well. And then I, again, wasn't thinking I'm going to take this anywhere really. I just thought it's like a nice uh, after school event, <laughs> after school treat. <laughs> so I just, I just basically kept training and then uh, qualified for the amateur world champs for Olympic distance. The next year, um, came third in that. And then I thought, well, maybe I could be quite good at this, uh, but still wasn't thinking I'd take it professionally or anything. And then anyway, cut long story short, I decided I'd give myself a shot. And then I left work quite rashly with not a lot of money, moved to Lanzarote, where, where Trevor was at the time. He kind of moved out of there um, to set up a massage practice. And then I sort of lived out there for like nine months, which was a... Uh, which was great. I mean, I was lucky. I met some cool people there when I was there. It was quite a lonely experience initially, but I met some some great people and spent the year sort of training and then racing 70.3s as an amateur. Um, and then towards the end of the year, did the national champs, came second, and then got a professional license. So it, it all happened quite quickly. And to be honest, I, in hindsight, probably turned professional too early because I just wasn't 
good enough, I think, at that time to do it. And the gap was still quite quite a large one between amateur and professional. But a, a lot of it initially wasn't planned, and then it was a bit of a punt. And then it was like, actually, maybe I could do something here. And then it's kind of rolled from there. So it it wasn't one of these like childhood dreams or anything like that. It was more a case of like, I had a bit of talent at sport and I managed to get a second chance through triathlon and then I gave it a shot. That's, is that, was that succinct? Probably not. I mean, that's pretty decent. Yeah, right. it gives us a gives us the overview. Yeah, I right. mean, you know, Good. bottling your life into a few minutes is you know, it's hard, right? <sighs> yeah, tricky. Mm. Any more growth spurts since then? Well, yeah, I mean, I uh, I was about the same height as my mum, which is about like five foot seven until I was like sixteen. I had a massive growth spurt when I was eighteen, and then yeah, got to uni and I was finally a fully grown human. <laughs> Which is great, which is great. Because prior to that, yeah, I was at an all boys school and it was uh, getting to getting to Sussex was a nice, was, it, was yeah. a nice, uh, it was a nice change. My goodness. So yeah, tell us more more about Trev as well. He seems a bit of a legend, doesn't he? Yeah, Trev is a legend. Like he um, he's basically like a sort of South London boy, born and bred, Crystal Palace. Um, and I think to be honest, when I met him, it was almost like the perfect nexus of like he. He basically just had a divorce, like a pretty messy divorce, and he's got a few, had a few kids. And I think, like, he... He's not going to come on the pod now, is he? No, no. <laughs> oh, that's, that's true, see. That's true. In, a, in a very tricky divorce. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, like, maybe he was sort of looking for, like, a new project, and I think he sort of saw that in me as, like, a sort yeah. of, you know, father-son relationship, and I think I was looking for the same. So... The, the sort of timing worked really well. And he'd kind of been a runner. I think he'd done over like 30 or 40 marathons to like, you know, he ran the 230 right. quite a few times. Very good runner. Yeah. And uh, he had kind of just caught the triathlon bug sort of five years before that. So he was very much in the kind of throw of triathlon. Yeah. And I think he saw me as like, oh, I can you know, help this guy, I can train this guy. And he, yeah, he helped me immensely, um, particularly in the early period. But he also said to me, you know, if, if I am going to leave work, he, he definitely reiterated all the negatives of like, it's going to be hard, you're going to have no money, you're going to be lonely. You know, he really gave me a balanced view, which obviously I didn't listen to. But he, yeah, he definitely helped me a lot in the early period. And was, uh, I guess, you know, Trev's clinic, which has the same name as the, the coaching yeah. as yeah, well. Yeah, is yeah. that sort of, um, you know, was Trev kind of uh, an influence in you getting into coaching as well? Or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he... You know, I'd never really had a proper coach before Trevor and he kind of just took me on as like a sort of, for free. It was much like, you know, I'm, I just want to help you. I'm going to get something out of this. Like, I enjoy it. Uh, and he just gave me all the knowledge he had um, from training over the years um, in running and triathlon and kind of gave that to me, which was extremely generous. And I think, to be honest, like he helped me much more from a kind of like mentorship point of view. Like having someone who was like 60 at the time or 55 at the time to kind of help advise you from a kind of life perspective as to like what was going to happen and how it's going to influence your life and everything. So from a kind of like philosophical point of view as well, he was like super, super useful. Um, and he helped me immensely in the early years. And like, as my, as uh, Matt said as well, APB stands for Athletes Prepared By, and he um, had that name, that was his kind of uh, massage clinic name. And he just let me share that from a coaching point of view. But yeah, Trevor was like, I would say the main like tipping point as to me going to coaching as well. Particularly in the early days where you feel when you're younger, you think, well, what, you know, what can I teach people? You know, he kind of really gave me the confidence to coach in the early days. Yeah, and you still go back there 
pretty often, don't he? Is, is he still out? He's still out in London. Yeah, yeah, so he's been out there like over 10, 12 years yeah, now. 10 years. Yeah, yeah, like he's had the clinic for 10, 12 years. So his clinic is in, um, so this Club de Santa, obviously, most people know yeah. in Lanzarote. It's literally two kilometres in the village down from there. And he treats, well, he treats some of the best athletes in the world. Like, you know, the Charles Barkley's going there, Patrick Lang goes there. Um, I mean, everyone probably who's done triathlon on a high level, like some of the sort of top 10 girls and boys in the world, he's, he's treated. Um, and I think people go to him not just because he's a great therapist physically, but because he can, he can really tap you like mentally and put you in a good space. Even if you're, mm. you've gone in there with a real issue, you know, he can really kind of, he's got some he's definitely got a skill in that in that area of kind of giving you kind of a a positive way forward very good with people very good with people yeah yeah, yeah. knows knows how to tap into how people tick and what mm. gets them kind yeah. of yeah gets yeah yeah i've been out there multiple yeah. times and we've like spent loads of time with trevor and like um so yeah it's uh it was yeah it was a lot of luck meeting him and it kind of it did change my life so yeah yeah, nice. I guess like sort of, you know, those early days of like the uh, the training in Lanzarote, you know, with Shadow and, and Trev. Yeah, and... Ian, th those early days were the best days. Looking back now, like I think as as I kind of got better in inverted commas, like the training got more kind of formulaic and more kind of periodized and basically more boring. You know, you, know, you have to start hitting certain watts and certain hours. And in the early days, he very much took a kind of like, it's got to be fun We've got to make it kind of, you know, varied and interesting. And he had a friend, Alan, Inger Alan Ingerfield, who um, was actually, he had the Ironman record back in like, the 80s on a, on a steel road bike, like, you know, 8.30 or something ridiculous. And he actually founded Boardman Bikes with Chris Boardman. Oh, right. He had yeah, ex-Marine, like, nice. absolute nutter. And he, he <laughs> was out there. Well. Yeah, he was out <laughs> there. He was out there with Trevor in Lanzarote yeah. at the time, and they were mates. And both of those two made my plan, which was obviously the worst idea. <laughs> and I think they just initially just wanted to hurt me. But it was, um, you know, there was stuff like, we did this stuff like, he called it like training in Afghanistan. You know what like, what, like uh, lands where it's like, it's barren landscape, like super hot sand dunes. And it made me like, well, I mean, I was all up for it, but he'd make me take like kettlebells into the desert for like two hours and just do continual exercise up like sand dunes and stuff. So like that stuff, I wouldn't say is the most like functional for triathlon, but it, but to be honest, looking back, like it, it definitely was the most like memorable and like fun time in the sport. Like, yeah. and we used to do stuff like, we'd go to Framara, which is obviously a massive beach there and like running, you know, run at like knee deep um, in the sea and do like loads of drills and like, do loads of barefoot running and like all, all these kind of things that like kind of, I don't know, they just, they for me now looking back are the most fun things. I like would do a yeah. time trial, it'd be like two hour time trial. You know, like he'll be on like a scooter following me and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> Where's the old Taviesco time trial? Yeah, um, yeah. Like things like yeah. that that they don't do anymore. Yeah, like a lot of kind of, I guess, old school, things that would be seen as old school, but actually like, I think that's what people probably miss in the sport now where they get almost too serious too quickly and they're asking mm. about things like what's my normalized power when actually like you know what what's the point like yeah, yeah. why are you doing it like you know what think about you know the environment you're in the people you're doing it with like the all these things i think he kind of taught me that actually like, from a coaching point of view as well they're just mm. as important as the 
as the kind of my nature of the sport. Yeah, I've got this image of uh, Rocky Balboa, and uh, when he, I think is it Rocky Four, when he has to fight the Russian Dolph Lundgren, and like, you know, Dolph's all like hooked up with all the uh, all the meds and all the uh, scientists measuring everything, and uh, Rocky's out there training in the snow and like chopping wood and like just. Uh, you know, finding ways of <laughs> lifting yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, like he, he used to follow that. He used to go for like, his, we did this run once, like a brick run, and the run was like 20K, but the first 6K is uphill. And he'd just be on like a bike, just following me with a whistle. Stuff like that. <laughs> like, and it was like 30 degrees. You know, but like things like that, I think, you know, yeah, when I look back at the experience of like being a professional and racing and yeah, stuff like that, yeah. Those are the ones that I kind of that draw my attention more than any race or any kind of like, you know, big train session. It's those kind of experiences mm. that kind of like make it like worth it in the end. Yeah. So and I think I tr I've tried to kind of like give that to athletes now, that especially ones that are very focused and motivated. Like mm. you, you don't have to do everything that's like totally functional to the race. You can do things that mm. are like you can still go to the out to your mates and do these other things because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much, you know. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. more like what keeps you in the sport. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, there's so much emphasis these days placed on, you know, measuring and testing and, mm. you know, finding that that formula that kind of works yeah. for for you. But there's definitely, an, like, sport at the end of the day should be fun. You know, it's it's just, it should be, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not doing this uh, as a serious kind of sport, really. Like it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, something to do. Well, I don't know, we, we make it matter as much as you want. But well, everyone's uh, in a rush, right, to, to kind of get their kind of like best performance. But I mean, the more in a rush you are, the more you forget to kind of appreciate and look where you are and, and appreciate. Yeah. Right? Cause like, for example, you, you know, I sometimes get clients and they have a very, you know, because triathlon tends to be a sport where it's at a certain point of your life where you have this kind of nexus between a bit of time and a bit of money to, 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 to kind of dedicate towards it. But if you rush it too much, then then everything else around you like falls apart. So you, mm. the way I think to do it is to kind of mesh it into your life in a, in a way that you can just keep going with it. And, it, and, the, and, and that way it's just a lot more satisfying like in mm. the long run. Because I mean, mm. even if you did cram it for 18 months, then what? I mean, you're gonna just like, what, sell the mm. bike and do something else? Like, there isn't that much kind of um there's not that much benefit for doing something a bit quicker yeah it's actually interesting so, we we spoke about almost this exact point in the last podcast um about how <clears throat> people are almost too invested in in the result uh, right at the end the the race and that's the be end all of everything but really the the best memories you have are of the process that that training all the experiences that you had along the way and meshing that into the the rest of your life or as as you try now to you know make it part of your life it is like a lifestyle it's 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 not just this kind of one ultimate goal totally i mean i think that the point at which you kind of get up in the morning and you do a a run or a swim and you don't call it like training is the point where you know you've ingrained it in your life so much so that it's just basically like brushing your teeth. Mm. And Trevor just says to me all the time, he's like, you know, you'll do the race, like no one will give a beep, and then you'll wake up, someone will come up, and then what? <laughs> like, you know, and most people these days, they race once a year. Like, pff, anything could happen on the day, you know what I mean? And, and they're not even spreading the risk across five races, you know, or again, maybe they don't have the resources to do that, mm. you know, it's not their fault. But like, I just think that 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not speaking from a place I've never thought about the result in the gate of the process. Like sure. You learn yeah, it yeah. through going through it, for sure. But I think my best memories are from like being on training camps with mates or like doing like an epic ride or like, or just going for a swim on a sunny morning and being like, oh, like, like I'm so lucky to be able to do this. Like this is like, you know, I'm lucky that I don't even have to feel motivated to go for a swim. It's, it's so yeah. easy for me. So I don't know, I think it's helpful to have like, someone on the journey with you that can kind of check you because you can mm. just get a bit too a bit insular yeah 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 it can all be a bit like i've got to do this it's on my to-do list he's told i've got told me i've got to do a swim it's like not really like i yeah. mean just and that's why it's it, you've got to have people around you that uh you've got to bring other people into the process with you whether it be mates or whether you join mm. a club or whether you have like good relationships with you know your physio and your bike through and whatever you've got to have other people on mm. it with you otherwise it can become a little bit vacuous and you get to a point of like i've just done like a whole sunday riding on my own and like my mates went to a barbecue and like what's the point mm. yeah yeah having so, those that that those people on your side like family partners 100 like that is arguably the most important thing it is the most important if thing, everyone's yeah. like invested in it for you and with yeah. you yeah then it becomes so much easier to make it that lifestyle and this, it's not a sport, it's a lifestyle. And that's where you want to get to, like you say. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to go out for a bike ride and then we're going to do this, that and the other. And it's like, if you if you become so insular that it starts to affect your other relationships in other areas of your life, mm. things at work, like, you know, with your your partner at home or whatever, your mates, you don't see yeah. your mates for six six months, that sort of thing, then you kind of got to reevaluate. But it's like we were saying before we've, we started recording, it's like, yeah, you do have to get specific at a certain point, but you want that specific phase to be kind of like yeah. as short as possible, mm. as short yeah. as possible, yeah. or as short as the race demands. Mm. Agreed. Um, otherwise, yeah, you run the risk of like, you know, the other plates that are other aspects of your life kind of falling down. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely made some bad mistakes in the early days. Like partly because of just doing everything like as cheap as possible. Like for example, I did this race in like Chantilly, which is like an hour outside Paris. This is like 2011 or something. I think Matt knows the story. Uh, so <laughs> this is quite good. So I've obviously sold, I said to Emily, right, like, we've only been going out like a year or two. I was like, right, I'm gonna like do this race. Then we have like this weekend in Paris. It'd be like super nice. She's like, oh, okay, okay, I'll come along. Um, got, to the, got to the race like an hour outside of Paris. And it was like 30 degrees and there was no shade or anything. And I was like, right, so the race starts at eight. Like, so Emily just basically had all the bags. Like she was just basically melting under a tree with like the wheelie luggage, the backpack, everything. <laughs> did the race, finished the race. Um, How did the race go? It was all right. I think I was second. But I was so wrapped up in my own stuff. I didn't even realise that Emily like was basically like, like, one one percent of blowing and then got the got the train back to paris right the idea is we met meet this guy from airbnb and then you know so got got to this bar which was outside the airbnb i called the guy i went mate are you um are you are you can you open the door can you can you open the door to the apartment because i've been ringing he said i'm not in paris i was like yeah but i've booked the airbnb he said, he's not in paris I was like, shit so i was like I was, at my mind, I was like, well, I'm not going to pay for a hotel now. I'm just going to like ask Emily's mate who was with us, who lived in Paris, if we could stay at his. And as soon as I did that, <laughs> Emily just exploded. <laughs> and that was like, that was just one example of like a car crash of me trying to just like 
One of many. <laughs> One of many. But no, but that's why, like, when I, when I sort of, like, help advise people racing these days, I try and say, look, pick a race that, like, you know, you go to a couple of days before, then perhaps have a holiday there afterwards, or is it a race yeah, that suits yeah. your family? Is it a race that's, like, a good time of the year that fits around your work? Like, there's so many factors that I never, like, thought about, partly because I was probably 25. But, like, it, it just helps the longevity of the whole process and, and makes it a lot more tolerable for everyone around you. And this is kind of what, um, you know, all part and parcel of being a coach that you might not necessarily appreciate, right? Yeah, totally. Because, you know, you think of a coach, what do you think? You think, oh, a plan, right? You have a goal, you work backwards, you yeah. devise a plan to reach that goal. But all of this other stuff is like the, the quote, quote, soft skills of coaching yeah, yeah. is just as, if not even more important. And, you know, just like, if you give us a bit of an insight, Colin, to terms of like how you've kind of sort of what your kind of current coaching kind of philosophy looks like, how do you work with your athletes and how has that kind of changed from when you sort of say first started and you were, you know, chucking kettlebells around in the desert. <laughs> do you do that with the athletes? Yeah. Right, we're doing the kettlebell um, session. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people need it. But I think, um, yeah, it's a good question. I think I think when I started coaching, you get quite pedantic about writing a certain plan and you get very fixated about this plan. You're like this masterpiece that you're You want the plan to look good, right? This is your Mona Lisa. Yeah, and you think you think the more I put on that plan, the more value add, the more people are going to think, I know what I'm talking about and this is like the plan. And actually, it's bullshit. I mean, it, basically, the better you get at coaching, the, the, almost the quicker the plan is to formulate, but the more the other stuff takes time to kind of bring around it. So like... How, often, more, how much time do you spend on my plan? Second. It's been a yeah. seven-year marriage. Um, <laughs> we're definitely in that seven-year stage, which is always a tricky one. Um, no, like, I think, yeah, so I think in the early stage, you kind of fixate about this, like, perfect kind of nexus of, like, um, theory that you're going to, like, give to someone and say, you're going to take that, and then you're just going to, like, eat it, and, like, then you're going to become, like, champion. You, know, you have this, like, bit of a kind of it's too idealistic essentially and then as you kind of get older or more experienced you realize that like and i'm talking about coaching amateur people with jobs and lives and families right take the professional out of the equation you realize it's it's not really about that it's, it's more like understanding the person the human behind the athlete and working out what's this person like like what's their life like like how much time do they have what's their stress like do they have kids like do they have a high propensity for injury? Like, do they have an eating problem? Do they? How is their like, attitude towards strength? And you kind of just try and figure out the, the sort of the person that you're dealing with, and then slowly um, provide them with a, a plan or a schedule or a, um, or an idea that will help them get to where they want to go. I think it is as simple as that. And then you you bring in all these other ingredients. You might not all bring them in together because the person might be you know have like zero slack at that time. But you. You're constantly calibrating with that person about how they're feeling, how much time they have, maybe they've changed jobs, maybe they're now single, like all these other things that come into it as in how much time mm. they have and energy they have to put into mm. this sport. And then you're checking in on them and saying, well, how do you feel? Oh, I'm too tired. Okay, maybe we, we pull it back a bit because you know if you can't operate on a day-to-day basis at work, then this is not sustainable for you. So it's very much a kind of like, I don't know how to use the word, but organic sort of process of like just understanding the person and then mm. making it more and more specific as you go along. And I think it's harder and harder as you get older not to have your your way of doing something and chucking it on too quick. You've got to just reserve judgment as long as you can and then slowly introduce different stimuluses as you go. Um, and obviously everyone like everyone is tricky in their own right as well. And and, and the, the easiest 
the easier people to coach tend to be the ones that communicate the best and that give you not necessarily super detailed feedback, but it just it's just an easy kind of dialogue of calibration and, and truth. Mm. Saying that, like, how do you actually feel? Can you actually do more? Can you actually do you need to do less? Like, and just uh, molding the process. And then it's a, a, then the hardest thing of coaching probably is managing expectations, right? Because some people have never done a sport and they have an idea in their mind, a fanciful idea they're going to do that. Sometimes they're pretty accurate. Sometimes it's a complete shot in the dark. But part of your job as a coach, I believe, is to basically well, not unravel, but is to like understand where the expectation is coming from and then reframe the expectation based on education experience the person you're dealing with the talent they have what time they have and then making them contextualize a success based on what based on themselves and not on anyone else and that's tricky i probably just yeah. rambled too much there no that's, that's really good yeah. like and this yeah. is exactly like what we do day to day yeah that is like. tricky, and and when you're a younger coach or younger person, whatever, you're obviously not as confident. So like, you know, I've coached some people that are you know powerful within the industry or business or whatever, mm -hmm. and you you in the early days you think, oh no, I don't want to upset that person. I just want to be more of a yes person because I don't want to mm -hmm. I don't want to lose the client or whatever. And and then you learn over time actually it's just far better to just like have frequently tricky conversations rather than wait for one hard one <laughs> it's the same goes for relationships right so yeah. like, i think it's just um being confident but without being completely sure because none of us know what we're doing exactly but we're, we're going on our own experience and i think as a coach just showing enough vulnerability that if i don't know the answer then i have trevor for example or i have mike trees who used to coach me he's got 50 years he's been, you know, i've got people around us or people around that, that we can kind of get their advice and try and come to like a, a common ground mm -hmm. um to help that person that goes working with you guys right we work together so if like i'm not sure about you know it's uh, client x has a certain injury or propensity for injury oh he went in for a bite fit for you maybe that's because you know his his crank length was too short or his saddle was too too high or whatever it is so we, we're working together with with other professionals in the field to get to a common ground to make it simple for the person doing the sport to get from A to B. Just the network. That helps. I mean, you know, that's one thing I think we've done well is that, you know, and that's, that's generally been when I started, I needed to find people around me. And Trevor always says, you need to find the best in each class to help you get to be the best you can be. I mean, it makes obviously common sense. But, you know, for me, the goal was to find like, a really good physio in London, like a really good bike fitter, a really good like uh, a nutritionist, a strength coach. And, and that now is built into our network. So when we work with someone, we obviously want to give them the best and we mm. can communicate with these people. So it's just super simple. Um, yeah. And there's no, uh, there's minimal waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, there's quite an interesting story actually of you working with Colin on his bike fit and it kind of resolved all these other issues that we, that, well, you hadn't really kind of connected before. Yeah, so, uh, well, that's been a process in itself, hasn't it? Idea. Like you and your bicycles, <laughs> um, but yeah, but just seeing how when you know we first started, like you know 2014, 2015, to where it was when you raced Israel, Ironman Israel in November last year. Yeah. Yes, we'd gone through some different bikes, but how not only your position had changed, but what you'd done to your body to allow your position to change. Yeah. Right, and that's kind of a big thing that kind of often goes unsaid or unkind of like appreciated is that you did a lot of work to get your body to a point where you could maintain a certain position, right? And giving yourself the chance to, yeah, get the most out of yourself on, on any given day. So, but yeah, it's been a process.
Yeah, and and I think like you know I'm not saying also that I'm like super patient by any means. Matt would definitely adhere to that. <laughs> Patience is not and one of I, your virtues. And I only worked I out say. about three bike fits that were more than about an hour long because yeah. I just couldn't sit down that long enough. So I, I'm not coming from a position of like you know oh you need to just be super patient and wait for it to happen. You don't. You need to. You know, in our experience, Matt and I working together, you need to be relentless in molding yourself. Once you have a position that you're comfortable with, getting the body to catch up with that position, and it, it mm. just takes a lot of work. Like, and I think people expect that you know they're gonna they're gonna pay for a bite fit, therefore it's the silver bullet, right? Yeah, mm. therefore yeah. they're gonna be in that perfect position. And when you look at the the best guys in the sport, you know it's been an evolution of ten to fifteen years of of small iterations that have led them to that position. But not only that, every night they're doing. You know, I think I used to spend like between eight and ten minutes every night, like every night of the year doing like certain mobility exercises so I could get into this like flat back like position with my head tucked. I mean, it's particularly being quite broad. It was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. And it was like, you go on rides, you know, three, four hours and try and stay in the bars and it's just painful. But unfortunately, you, you kind of have to do the work. Yeah, and for you as a professional, it's like you had a certain demand of your event. It's like, yeah. if you're not riding X speed over yeah. X distance, you're gonna be off the back. So it's like your your event is different to like our event in that sort of sense. Even though you're racing the same distance, you're like doing the same swim bike run. What you're doing is a different game to what you know an age grouper is doing. So yeah, but you've got like the the specific demand of say the bike element of a triathlon. You have to be able to maintain X position, and this is like goes for everyone as well. You have to maintain. This is the demand of your event. This is what's required. How do you get there? That's the kind of the thing. And it's different for everyone. You're obviously being at the sharp end of it. You need to, you know, sustain a quite kind of, you know, pointy, aggressive position to be able to be competitive. But for, you know, an age grouper, the demands are still the same. It's just the position is going to be different, right? True, true. But you and I both know that, for example, like frontal position on a bike, uh, you know, making some like relatively small adjustments, which might take a winter or two, will save you more watts than you'll ever be able to gain from a training point of view. Yeah. So like you know you you know you can train through a winter and maybe gain twenty watts, but you could probably gain twenty watts in a frontal position if you spent ten minutes a day for six hundred days doing mobility. So it's like it's like yeah. at some point you're going to have to do the yeah. work to to achieve the the sort of optimal level for you. I guess the trick is knowing what the work is and where to where, which one to do first, or you know where to apply it and so on. Yeah, and that's. Yeah, and that, that's tricky. Yeah, and that's where, that's where you, you need a coach or a team or a network around you to kind of help you make those decisions and so on. Yeah. Um, but I really like the way you talk about that network and how you approach coaching. It's a very human kind of way of looking at a problem. You know, it takes a team and a human and that uh, ability to think about the human in front of you with emotions and you know lives and other responsibilities outside of their sport rather than just following you know the formula you know you, you can you can pick a you know a training plan out of the back of 220 triathlon and you know that's yeah this will this is your ironman training plan but yeah. there's there's just no it's just a piece of paper there's no context for you know that human being yeah. and everything, all the baggage that everybody has in their lives that's going to contribute to you being able to do this event and so on, which is, yeah, I guess the power of coaching. Um, well, 
the power of good coaching, I'd say. No, I think it's the difference probably between like really good coach. I think you've got to care more about, we have to care more about the end result. It's just no, you know, just because someone went under, under nine hours for an Ironman or whatever, like at what cost? You know, and I think you, like in anything mm. in life you endeavour, you're, you're, you're weighing up, like what do you want and then what, what is that going to cost you? Not just financially, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, time-wise, yeah. opportunity yeah. costs, everything else that goes into yeah. it. And I think as a coach, you have to be very straight up with someone and say, look, like you may, we might better get on the podium here, but you know it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, for example, some weekends. It's going to cost you some like maybe early mornings. Maybe you're going to be more tired of work than you want to be. Like, do you really want that? Maybe it's better we go for like fifth. You know, you're never going to say that yeah. overtly, but you kind yeah. of have to say in as many words that like, especially when you've almost like been there and done it to an extent, you know the costs. And some yeah. people have to go to the cost to find it, you know, but yeah. actually sometimes it, it's nice actually when you see someone, you think, you know, what, I could like slow them down a bit. Not like in terms of like mm -hmm. a performance, but take a longer view. So they're able to just have, I don't like the word balance, but like just perhaps have a bit more balanced life. Mm. That would in turn mean they'll be happier in the long run, mm. which for me is the goal as a coach. Mm. The goal is not like, sometimes to me, they just tell me a time. It's like, I mean, as we said a minute ago, like the next day, no one mm. will give a shit about yeah, yeah. the time. So like, let's just like work out all the other pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. Or well, as Matt was saying, there's probably a time and a place for, you know, real specificity or like, you yeah. know, all right, this, this, I don't know, period or this quarter, this month, I am absolutely totally invested in my Iron Man. And, I, yeah. and and if you know that, then you can go okay. to your family and be like, "Look, I really need to do this. This is this is what I need to do. Can you support me in that?" Yeah. Rather than being like, you know, a week before being like, "Oh, sorry, I can't look after the kids." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm off to Lanzarote for a month. <laughs> yeah, and that's where the planning comes in, right? Yeah. Like we when we coach people, we look at like the the race and we look backwards and we we periodize the training not just in a physical way, but in a way that like. For example, if you've got a you know, big month end of work in April, then maybe May is not the best time to race. You know, so we just look at the races from a kind of like your A race, B race, C race, or whatever, and, and periodize that in a way that fits around school holidays, like you know, um, stag do's, whatever you've got going on in that year, so you can kind of achieve more than one thing. Yeah, I think like we mentioned this again before we started recording, but race selection. Yeah, as well, giving yourself the best chance at mm. success, whatever that looks like for that individual. Yeah, like like you say, you know, if you're like ninety kilos and you've got a sweat rate like you know, yeah, a, a, now, a, yeah. you know, a bulldog in thirty <laughs> degrees, it's like you know, you're not going to go into somewhere like Austria, which has like loads of climbing and is really hot. So, yeah, like all this kind of stuff is like yeah. what makes a coach or gives coaching, good coaching, that real value. It's like yeah it's like well, let's let's look at the look at the year let's let's mm. plan it out like what and races are you going to give yourself the best chance of success at agree and like the the race could be also could be down to like physiology like you say about like mm. you know sweat rate uh like how much you weigh versus how much elevation on the course like mm. whether you do well in hot climates or humid climates or cold climates or whether you prefer sea swim or you know all these things are, they're quite basic but people don't yeah. think of it too much and then the other is like you know where's going to give you best return like where what's the kind of best bang for your buck in terms of if you did have a finite budget which most people do where's best to put that training camp like if, you, if you're racing in june maybe january like maybe that's more of a mental break than a, than a training break you know what I mean? it's, mm, mm. so you just got to be 
I think you've got to be smart as to uh, where you put that. Um, yeah. And it has to be thought out. Yeah. Did you have to give up anything that you, I don't know, I don't want to say regret. But yeah, yeah, like, no, you can, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, did I, you regret having to kind of give anything up whilst you're a professional? Like, you know, you, like those hard. <laughs> keep, it, keep it straight. Yeah. Yeah, I think like I uh, I found it quite lonely to be honest. I mean, like, Emily's still with you, right? Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was no. I think um, because of my setup, I was largely in London, which wasn't ideal from a kind of like training point of view. I did find the process of being professional quite lonely, to be honest. And that I wouldn't say is a regret, but it's something that I had. I sort of suffered with the most. I didn't find the training mm -hmm. that hard. It was more the case I did a lot of it on my own. Too much time in the mind is not good for anyone. But you're quite sociable anyway. I am. Right? You're, I'm, quite, I'm, you're an extrovert. I am. sociable. Yeah, I am like a sociable extrovert. So it really went against my grain in terms of like uh, the way I am. Yeah. You know, like they always say like, um, was it the loneliness of a long distance cyclist? Like I, mm, yeah. I never wanted that really. Do you know what I mean? I didn't mind going for a long ride, but then yeah. I was like, come home and like ring three people because I haven't spoke to anyone for six hours. Like <laughs> I, I'm quite... <laughs> Yeah. socially needy so like, I think I think I struggle from that point of view for sure and then obviously there's the opportunity cost of like of like I didn't really make any money as a professional so like I could have earned some money right I mean you yeah. know yeah. take the glamour out of it like I, I could have earned a living doing something else could have earned more money probably could have had a nicer flat blah, blah, blah. I don't regret that though but that at the yeah. time was going through my mind when my friends were getting married buying houses and I was like I'm really skint like I'm really sort of living on the limit but purposely on the limit which makes it worse. <laughs> so like, I wouldn't say that I regretted that, but at the time I found that really difficult to like maintain. Um, and then I, probably the reason I, I don't think I was very good was I just used to always think about opportunity costs of my time, which is not a good thing for an athlete to think about because you just need to be focused on one thing. And I was always mm. thinking, yeah, but I could be doing that, I could be doing that, you know, and that's, that's not always the best way to be, um, mm thinking towards the end particularly so I would I don't I don't regret it at all because I think that the experience in terms of going through it was like mm. mega valuable for sort of life and it's a nice story and it's I think it's interesting like relative to what I could have been doing mm. so I don't regret it whatsoever and I met some brilliant people through it um, but it definitely takes a toll on people around you when you do it at a professional level and I didn't mm. see my family enough I didn't spend enough quality time with my girlfriend and our wife and I didn't see my mates enough and that is can't really be sort of brought back. So hmm. that's the thing I would say I regret most. Yeah. I mean, look, look. For example, this is quite deep, but like, look at uh, Gustav Eden. Gustav Eden, right? His mum hmm. recently died of cancer, right? Yeah. And um, he he realised, and obviously he probably knew it, his mum, you know, was dying for over a two year period, but he'd hardly seen her because hmm. he was travelling around the world in training camps. He'd probably seen her five days in two years. Now she's died. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It puts it in perspective. It's like, well, mm. great, you're doing some triathlons, mate. People on Instagram are really happy for you. No one knows you. You've mm. probably got four mates, you know, in the training camp, and that's your family. Yeah. You've never seen your mum. Yeah. And I think when people look at these professional athletes, they go, oh, it's great, they're like, oh, we're riding. But most of them aren't making a good living from the sport, apart from about 10 or 20. Yeah. Most of them are pretty lonely. Most of them don't have much going on outside the sport. And most of them, when the sport finishes, they're going to be in a very tricky place. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not it's not like a, a kind of utopia yeah. it's, it's, it, these guys are usually a lot of them are in a difficult spot I'll take out the Fredinos and these guys but mm. 
the, the second tier, as I would say, the guys yeah, finishing yeah. between sixth and twentieth, or sixth and it's a it's a bit of a hustle. So how do you think the uh, yeah. so the, speaking of like you've got your your sort of the sharp end like your Fredericks, yeah, yeah, world, Lang, yeah. Langer, um, all those guys, those kind of like you know the West Bromwich Albion of triathletes. Me, know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah fin- <laughs> but like you know getting Conference. regular top tens like you know yeah, yeah. up there, but yeah, you know yeah. not kind of in the money. How do you think like things like you know the PTO and their influences like have they changed the sport for the better? Like, where do you see it kind of going for uh, you sort of, you know, your everyman pro, if you like? I don't think much will change for the everyman pro because the PTO is still like, you know, you've got to be top 40 in the world, right? So I think mm. the everyman pro is probably like probably between 50 and 100. So it's like, mm. it's a tricky one. But I think the PTO on a kind of like, uh, on an even basis are a positive thing for sport, for sure. They're bringing competition in, they're bringing sponsors in, they're higher in the profile, they're bringing like a more contained environment which essentially will bring in pay-per-view eventually and stuff like that so i think the pto are like definitely a positive thing for the sport uh, i worry the fact that it's still kind of like a lot of the money i think is philanthropic so it doesn't seem mm. at the moment they're getting a big return on investment which might run out blah 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 but i think like um it's definitely changed things for example like the 70.3 world champs in finland you know, all the best guys really in the world, not taking it away from the guys that did those championships, but the best guys in the world were at the PTO a week before mm. and they were paying a lot better, bigger money and they were paying appearance fees. So I think if you can get on that tour, <clears throat> then you can make a living and that's that, that's great. Um, it's like, I guess, back in the day when it was like, you know, Olympic non-draft was the massive thing. Like, yeah. You'd have like the high V series in the US and yeah. you could make a living like doing mm. domestic Olympic non-draft. Yeah. And before you even had to go and think about doing Ironman or whatever. So I guess it's kind of like getting back to something maybe like that on a slightly different scale over a longer format. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know a huge amount about it, but I think... Um, from what I hear, a few guys that are racing it, I think it's definitely a positive thing. And I think mm-hmm. the there has been a bit of a large backlash towards Ironman, particularly from a kind of professional contingent in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And I think, thankfully, there's an alternative now where mm-hmm. you don't have to rely on like, you know, very, yeah. you know, Ironman events, which pay generally quite low. Mm-hmm. So optionality is a good thing, generally speaking. Yeah. Market competition, I guess. Isn't yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a good, good, good thing in any, any it's a, Yeah, in it's any a good sphere, thing. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how it evolves in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think it's still early days. And do you think them splitting the world champs this year is going to have a positive or negative effect for Ironman? I think it's a positive thing. I think it's good to have separate races. I think, I think if things were across a couple of days, it always takes the emphasis off one of them. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's always... You're less hyped for the next one, you know. I think it's it makes it a lot easier if if it's just one event on one on one focus from a kind of <clears throat> entertainment and commercial point of view. Um, and I'm pleased the world champs are in Nice, even though again it's quite extreme, of course. Mm. Like you know, Hawaii suits suits a certain type of athlete, and this course will suit a certain type of athlete. Have you done Nice? No. It's just way too hilly for me. I mean, the, the course is like, was it 2,400 climbing? It's a grand tour stage, basically, on it's the bike. It's pretty hard, yeah, on yeah. 180. I mean, you say that, it's a different kind of hard. I mean, you know, going in Hawaii is like, you've got to be in one position for 100. That's hard in itself. This is more of a kind of like entertaining bike course. I think it's more interesting. And people won't benefit 
really from drafting so much, which so it'd be fairer from a kind of like mm -hmm. bike skills and wattage point of view. But obviously, it's going to favour people that are under seventy kilos, mm. because if you're if you're in the high seventies, then the watts per kilo are going to have to be massive. To, to get there, and you're just going to be spent by the run. Mm. So obviously, it's going to be the guys who are a bit lighter and quicker, uh, sorry, lighter and yeah, and smaller who are going to benefit. Mm. But it'd be interesting to see what happens. I think like historically, like in, in professional racing, the swim has become more and more and more important, particularly because packs mm. now. Even if you've got 12 meters, like you're getting a big gain and the motorbikes mm. and everything like that. So to, to chase up to that, you've got to be like a phenomenal bike rider. Mm. And even then you're spending a huge amount of energy to get there. So I think <clears throat> this race will be interesting. And I think um, it will bring out some guys that haven't really been seen on that world stage. Mm. Yeah. Well, we had this with 70.3 worlds a few years ago, didn't we? You know, Gustav winning on his road bike. Yeah. And, and that's cool. It just blows the whole race up. It's mm -hmm. great. Um, from, a, so from an entertainment point of view, yeah, great. It's, it's great. From yeah. a business point of view, if you're like you know Iron Man and looking at it from like a business perspective, I guess it's also a good thing because you open up the possibility of higher participation, right? So you can have more slots, which means more money, which yeah. means yeah, for them more profit probably. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I think like I don't know, everyone wins, I guess. I think Nice as well, it's not just like any place, like it has a big history in triathlon. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. It's obviously big enough to like hold a big event and it's it's relatively cheap to fly to in Europe. So I think it has a lot of plus points. Yeah. Um, and I think it'd be good for spectators because you can, you'll be able to see the run and the swim easily. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for it. It should be good. And uh, weather's usually pretty good. So it's usually pretty warm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Hawaii's pretty warm too. That's true. Yeah, that's but, true. But yeah, it'd be, uh, be interesting to see yeah, what happens. Skip has been uh, talking some, talking that's it up. It. So uh, yeah. What's he saying? Usual stuff. Um, but yeah, but no, it's interesting to hear like, yeah, your your kind of take on it. And uh, yeah, it sounds like it's a good thing for the sport. So Yeah, I think so. Enough about butts. All right. Sounds like a good place to... Uh, Kind of wrap yeah. it up. But thanks, uh, thanks for your time, Colin. Where can people yeah. find you, Cole, if they're interested in like coaching or just like learning more about your your, yeah. your unorthodox training methods? <laughs> I say, unorthodox, yeah. If they want to learn about yeah doing weights in doing sand weights in the desert, then yeah. contact yeah. me at uh, apbworks.com. Uh, www.apbworks.com. Um, and you're on Instagram as well. Uh, APB coaching works. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put some links up so yeah. we'll be able to find you and still. Cheers. And um, yeah, you'll find plenty of connections through uh, the foundation network as well. So cool. Yeah. Good stuff. Cheers, Thanks, guys. Till right. next time. Bye.